This is Buried in Our Past, Hidden Histories podcast of Westport Museum for History and Culture, produced by Factory Underground, where you'll hear untold accounts of American history. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ramin Ganeshram, the executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. Once again, here with my friend, uh, Westport Museum board member, Greg Peretta. Hi, Ramin. Hey, Greg. Great to see you. You too. Uh, so it's June, and um, it's a beautiful time of year. Everyone's looking forward Absolutely. to the summer and so on. And recently, we have come to have a new national holiday called Juneteenth. Right. And you remember what Juneteenth is? Do you want me to remind you the details? Please of share. It? Okay. So, of course, Juneteenth. I'm get partially wrong, I'm sure. It, well, Juneteenth is June 19th, which marks in 1865 the day of the final emancipation of enslaved people in Texas uh, who had been kept from the knowledge that the 13th Amendment and the, and the Emancipation Proclamation had happened some years before in the beginning of the Civil War that by federal order freed and saved people. So these individuals in Texas had no knowledge of this. They were enslaved, and it took federal troops, Union troops, to come to Texas to force their liberation mm. on June 19th. Mm. And so that has long been celebrated in the black community yeah. as Juneteenth, now a national holiday. So I think it's a good opportunity to talk about some of those themes, mm -hmm. uh, notably slavery, but not in the South, mm -hmm. in the North, mm -hmm. and in Connecticut in particular. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start by asking you, mm -hmm. kind of growing up and sort yeah. of through your life, yeah. what did you think about the North versus the South with respect? And you grew up in Connecticut, I did. right? Yeah. I did. So tell me a little bit about what your understanding was of this idea. Well... I think that, and this is now influenced by some of my, you know, experience and my learning, you know, in the time that I've been, uh, you know, on the board of the museum and supporting the programming here. I will share just up front, you know, uh, that I was so affected when I walked into the remembered uh, installation, seeing the artifacts of the history that exists here in this area in, you know, quote, the North. Mm -hmm. And it did fly in the face of what my assumptions were as someone who grew up in the North, here in Fairfield County, believing somehow that there was a great difference between the North and the South. We can certainly talk about that. I mean, there are obvious differences between the North and the South. I mean, culturally and all of this type of right. thing. So there's no doubt about that. But uh, I think in terms, in regards to slavery and the history of slavery, I think that I always grew up thinking and feeling that, uh, you know, the North were just a little, you know, better than the South in terms of the treatment of and, you know, getting it right, I guess I could say. And uh, I'm not going to use the word we're better, but that the difference was in the treatment of people. Or uh, I, I grew up thinking there was an absence of slavery in the North. Exactly. Right. So as you learned in uh, our exhibit that you referred to, that was in 2018, 19, mm -hmm. remember the history of African-Americans in Westport, which listeners can go on our website and look at online. There's an online exhibit that's constantly updated. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite the same as having been there mm -hmm. at the installation. But, you know, the information is there. The truth of the matter is mm. that there was enslavement or, or slavery throughout all of the American colonies right. and uh, began quite early. So a number that we 
hear a lot is 1619, mm -hmm. being the time that the first enslaved Africans were brought to the North America to what became the United States, the 1619 Project, uh, very famous, looking at this history uh, incredibly well. Here in Connecticut, however, uh, enslaved people came to this colony at the time, 1639. So Connecticut, in fact, was the colony and later the state with uh, the most enslaved people mm. of any colony or state in New England. The closest census number we have is just before the, the Revolutionary War, and that number was 6,500 people, 6,500 people. But what I want to tell you about that number is that it's likely an inaccurate number. Census taking being then as it is now an imperfect science. Uh, you didn't always have census takers really getting the full picture for various reasons. Not the least of which is that the common mode at the time, not just in Connecticut, but elsewhere, was that uh, enslaved people who were too young to be taxed as property were not included. So depending where you were, the age was roughly about 16 years old, 15, 16 years old, uh, that you were considered fully viable, mm. right? There was a lot of childhood mortality during this period of time among black and white mm -hmm. uh, residents. So 16, once you re reached 16, there was this thought that you were sturdy enough to kind of last barring disease or illness. And then if you were an enslaved person, that's, that's usually around the time that you would be tithed or taxed, mm. right? And sometimes that, that influenced census takers in terms of noting people. So we feel that that's, that's a, a low number. Mm. Most of the enslavers in the state of Connecticut were ministers, judges, and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Connecticut had the longest gradual abolition period of any New England, and in fact, any colony, which was 1784 to 1848. And what this meant was that starting in 1784, if you were born in 1784, once you were 25 years old, you could and would receive petition for emancipation. That's not to say that if you were enslaved, somebody, your enslaver couldn't manumit you, right? Couldn't free you of their own volition. Mm -hmm. But by law, the age was 25. Uh, it later was then reduced to the age of 21. If you were born in 1783, you were out of luck. Mm -hmm. You could remain enslaved your entire life. And in mm -hmm. fact, here in Westport, we did have two people, Lucy Rowe and her husband, Charles, that we believe remained enslaved mm -hmm. the entirety of their life. Mm -hmm. uh, they they died in the, in the 1840s. They're buried in the Greens Farms Church yard. So what's interesting about it is that people will often say to us, oh, but it, but it was better. It was better than slavery in the South, enslavement in the South. And the answer is it wasn't better. It was different. So I'll give you a kind of statistical fact that at first seems odd, but if you pause and think about it, you'll understand what I'm telling you. There were more enslaved people in the South but there were more enslavers in the North. Why is that? Why is that? So here in the North, in a place like Connecticut, middle class or upper class people might have had one or two enslaved people. Mm -hmm. They may not have enslaved hundreds of people or even tens of people, right. but more of whiter European colonists, colonizers who were here owned other human beings. Whereas mm -hmm. in the South, a relatively small number of very rich planters owned hundreds of people. Right. So for example, there were 356 to 400 enslaved people at George Washington's Mount Vernon during his adult life, right. for example. Whereas here, the staples 
family yeah. enslaved one or two people. Right. The Jennings family may have enslaved one, two, three people over the course of, you know, a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the most prolific enslaver, the two most prolific enslavers here in Westport were a man named John Hyde, who uh, enslaved 10 to 12 people. Hyde Lane in Long Lots right. is named after him because right. his property was there. And Ebenezer Coley, mm-hmm. uh, after whom Coley Town was named, right. was another uh, enslaver who owned six or seven human beings. Right. So you had a lot of this, right, right? where they were small, smaller mm-hmm. farmstead, you know, compared to the South, certainly. Mm-hmm. Another difference was how where enslaved people lived in the North versus the South. Right. So in the South, you had these larger plantations with barracks and um, separate enslaved housing. Uh, but in the North, enslaved people tend to live inside the household with their enslaver. Mm-hmm. This also happened in the South if you were an enslaved person who worked in the house. Mm-hmm. But you could also go be, you know, still live in a barracks and then, right. you know, spend your time in the house during the day. Um, unless you were, let's say, a lady's maid or a valet where you would be sleeping nearby your enslaver in case they wanted you and they needed something in the night. In the North, enslaved people lived in the house with their enslavers. So you might um, sleep in the kitchen in front of the hearth. The attic was often a place where enslaved people lived. Captain Joseph Bennett, whose house still stands on Copper Road South, Mm. enslaved um, a family, the descendants of whom we often work with. And that house is fairly intact. And so we know they slept in that attic. Um, so that was different, but here's the thing that I want to tell you that, um, I think is fascinating to me, given the myth of that it was not as bad, right? Right. That's what people say. Or absent, as you said. Or absent. So Connecticut in particular of the Northern colonies and later states, uh, was entirely complicitous Mm -hmm. with enslavement, Mm -hmm. financially benefited from enslavement and, um, fully cooperated with laws to keep people enslaved. So there were two laws, uh, the 1793 and 1850 Fugitive Slave Acts, the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act uh, signed into law by President George Washington Mm -hmm. that said that if you were an enslaved person who self-emancipated, or some people would say escaped, we say self-emancipated because it indicates the agency of the enslaved person, self-emancipated and got yourself out of the state where you were enslaved and even into a state like, let's say, Pennsylvania, where the gradual abolition was only six months, or Connecticut or uh, Massachusetts that affected abolition um, 1776, I think, during the Revolutionary War, Vermont very early as well. Mm-hmm. If you got yourself to one of those states, you couldn't be guaranteed freedom, even though now you were in a free state, mm-hmm. because the Fugitive Slave Act said that agents and even, you know, citizens in these states were obligated to capture self-emancipated enslaved people and return them to their enslaver. Mm -hmm. Very famous case here in Connecticut, a man named William Grimes. Yes. uh, In New Haven. In New Haven, that's That's right. right. He had self-emancipated, this is the 1820s, 1830s. He finally, and this is a person who tried to self-emancipate many times, was recaptured many times. Finally gets to New Haven. He uh, sets up shop as a barber, self-taught to read and write, starts a family, owns property, and agents from his enslaver actually find him 
and he has a choice to be returned or basically to buy himself. So he sells all the property he has and he buys his own freedom. And he, one of the ways he earns money to pay for this yeah. is he writes the narrative of his life. I was going to ask you, please talk about his autobiography. His autobiography, which is the first self-written yeah. narrative of an enslaved pe person. And yeah. what do I mean by that? There are other enslaved narratives. They were given to you verbally. They were orally recounted right. to a white person to take down as an oral history and then uh, publish as, a, as an autobiography. Mm. The issue with that, as with any oral history mm. that is then rewritten by someone, is that there's creative license that's often taken, right. even well-meant creative license, yep. but nonetheless it happens. Sure. William Grimes wrote his own autobiography. Right. His, I think it's eight times, five times great granddaughter, mm -hmm. uh, Regina Mason, who we had at the museum to yep. speak, worked for 20 years, 25 years to find him and find this narrative and mm -hmm. actually has gotten it republished. Yeah. So you can purchase this. Yes. Um, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk about the voice in the autobiography? I've read some of it. Yeah. And what was so striking to me was his clear opinion yes. of his oppressors. Yes. And so well expressed, like in terms of his a kind of level of sarcasm and you get his attitude and his yeah. understanding and his intellect and yes. his capacity, his formidable presence in this narrative. It's really, I think, amazing to read. And I think that's to the point of what happens when it's a self-written yeah. narrative, yeah. right? You get the personality of the writer, you yeah. get his observations, you yes. see how astute he is about human nature, having yes. seen the worst side of it. Yes. Whereas um, the ones that are written on behalf of enslaved people from mm -hmm. their oral histories uh, were often written also to elicit sympathy right. for the purposes of abolition, which is an, it's, it's a noble cause, yeah. of course. Yeah. There are licenses taken that actually dehumanize right. the enslaved testator of this story, mm -hmm. which is why we kind of always take those with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. We try to glean facts about the enslaved from those narratives. Right. But in terms of assuming their state of mind and their opinions, we tend to look at them a little bit more critically than self-written narratives. Mm -hmm. But the point is that Connecticut fully complied with these Fugitive Slave Acts. Right. And as a result, Connecticut was a state that the enslaved while self-emancipating, did try to avoid. The preference was always to travel by water right. because that was faster, was safer. But particularly coastal Connecticut, there was no reason to go by foot through coastal Connecticut where you knew that there was a hostility towards self-emancipators and try to go by water. So it's interesting. Often people will come to the museum and say to us, you know, my house was on the Underground Railroad or my neighbor's house was on the, on the Underground Railroad. And although there are some, for the majority of cases, the answer is no. You think they were, but they were not. And so what are those safe rooms and hidden behind the stairs and all that? There were safe rooms created during both the French and Indian Wars and the Revolutionary War, people avoiding uh, marauding bands of, you know, opportunists and the chaos and also places to hide goods from tax collectors. Because mm. in the time of the colony, really, literally everything down to your teaspoon were taxed, right? So, no, very unlikely mm. that these rooms and these spaces, there are some mm -hmm. in Wilton, for example, mm -hmm. there is a, a place called the Ovals, known abolitionist home, right. definitely in the Underground Railroad. Right. So here's an interesting thing, yeah. the, the extent to which Connecticut was involved right. in enslavement, uh, areas like Westport mm. that were blessed with being uh, having a port 
on Long Island Sound mm-hmm. with direct access to New York and to Boston, as well as agricultural land. Farmers here made their money growing grain and raising chickens for eggs. A lot of people don't know that eggs don't need to be refrigerated, right? Mm-hmm. So eggs can actually last three or four weeks unrefrigerated. And so they were often sent to the West Indies, mm. to plantations in the West Indies, sugar plantations, mm. along with grain and salted beef and salted fish to feed enslaved people. Mm. So during the Revolutionary War, for example, this was such a robust business for towns like Westport. It's how people like Coley made their money. Mm-hmm. There was such a robust business in this that during the Revolutionary War, when England blockaded the Caribbean, their Caribbean colonies, to prevent uh, the revolting North American colonies from trading, um, there was a, a recession mm-hmm. that happened here. And furthermore, 10,000 enslaved people in Jamaica alone died of starvation. So that's how important Mm. uh, in a place like Westport, agriculture, again, uh, to support the greater economic engine of slavery Mm. was. When enslavement ended in the Caribbean in 1832 Mm. and uh, gradual abolition was going on here, Mm. uh, what Connecticut did was switched its um, economic base to the South. Mm. And, you know, there was a rise of manufacturing. Mm. So it was about uh, milling cloth and making hats and shoes Mm. and shirts and so on for plantations to outfit enslaved people. So well into the 1860s, Connecticut Mm. continued to make money on the idea of enslavement. Mm. Our insurance industry really took off when Aetna Insurance started enslaving the bodies of enslaved persons for their enslavers in the South. Mm. Just like you would insure your car, Mm. Aetna would insure an enslaved person from injury or from emancipate self-emancipation mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so Connecticut, the North, very mm-hmm. complicitous, mm-hmm. certainly benefited from and built upon enslaved labor mm-hmm. just as much as the South. Mm-hmm. So just different. The mm-hmm. scale was different mm-hmm. and the nuances were different, but it was ultimately um, the same thing. So mm-hmm. I, so I give this very long background to tell yeah. you a Juneteenth story. Right. By the time the Civil War started, the federal government, there was, there was no conscription, right? Mm-hmm. There, there was no draft. So the federal government was, a- was asking men to enlist yeah. uh, to fight on the side of the Union Army. So Connecticut, interestingly enough, it had very low enrollment because you know, the mythology we talk about now is Connecticut being an abolition state and the mm-hmm. Great North Star, mm-hmm. simply untrue. Mm. And so uh, men in Connecticut didn't enlist. They did not want to go fight this war in the South Mm. uh, to end slavery because it really wasn't that important and nor did they necessarily believe in it. In fact, uh, we have a really interesting story and I would encourage people to go on our Remembered Walking Tour to hear more about this, about Benjamin Tokay, who created Tokay Hall, the Teen Center, and his experience as a Union soldier. Right. But that's, oh, yes. that's I've a read, story. I've, for, read, yes, I've read this. Exactly. So, but people can come on our tour yeah. and hear about that. But conversely, yeah. 80% of the African American men mm. in the state of Connecticut mm-hmm. who could fight did, in fact, enlist and fight yeah. in the Civil War yeah. in what was called colored regiments, mm-hmm. two of which were present on Juneteenth mm-hmm. in Texas at that liberation. Wow. So very close tie to, you know, the Connecticut, mm. you know, colored regiments mm-hmm. history, as they were called, colored re- regiments, mm. and Juneteenth. Mm. So Connecticut's very tied into that. And this is the last thing I'll tell you yeah. about this interesting Juneteenth um, aspect. Those regiments, when they returned from the Civil War, mm. 
and from liberating, you know, uh, people in Texas. Yeah. They were not allowed to join the uh, state guard. So not being allowed to join the state guard units yeah. uh, to drill and to keep up with, you know, readiness, preparedness for right. warfare, men in these units decided to do it on their own. They continued to drill and train on their own without the sanction of either the state or federal government. Mm. This is largely in New Haven, the New Haven units. Mm. And they also continued to train young men who came after them for the next 40 or 50 years. Mm. So by the time World War I happened and troops had to be ready to go over to France when right. we entered the war, the only prepared units were those colored regiments. Wow. Not just here in Connecticut, but elsewhere in the country. So what what, what would you say is the main purpose, that, I mean, or main reason that there was such a low, you know, volunteering, you know, within the, the white population? So based on what we've read, letters, diaries, the historical record, discussions of politicians, uh, there was not a lot of sympathy for the mm -hmm. plight of the enslaved. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was not a lot of feeling that um, enslavement, slavery was necessarily a bad thing. Remember, Connecticut benefited from enslavement from 1639. So there wasn't this sensibility that it was, uh, quote unquote, our fight to have. Right. And remember, there was an economic engine that was benefiting from slavery in the South. Right. Fortunes were made mm -hmm. from manu in manufacturing companies in Connecticut, making hats and clothing and shoes for enslaved people on plantations in the South. So there was that practical thing, too. Why would you undo right. your economic benefit? Well, as I mentioned, my own interaction with the installation that was... Uh, you know, remembered was really arresting. And, um, you know, as a person who grew up in this area here in Connecticut, my own understanding of what actually existed, you know, it's wonderful to hear you talk, Ramin. It's, it's wonderful to hear you share all of this information. But what I found so uh, affecting was to simply see the artifacts of what existed here. Right. That's why I think it's so powerful. And what you're talking about, yeah. to be clear, are items we have in our collection. That's right. Uh, in our archives, yeah. which include deeds of yeah. sale That's right. for enslaved people. I mentioned John Hyde. We have a deed of sale from him in 1777, right. just days before the Danbury raid happened, yeah. buying a 12-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. uh, we have deeds of sale and probate documents that name people owned by the Coleys, mm. the Jennings, mm. you know, famous local names, right. the Sherwoods. Yeah. Purchasing people, selling people, leaving people in their wills to family members, right. and so on. So I agree with you. Yeah. Seeing that in black and white, the actual documents, yeah. unquestionable, is very powerful. Yeah, it speaks so eloquently and really devastatingly. I mean, yes. to be honest, I felt tremendously sobered by being in proximity to these items. They have their own language of sharing what really happened. 100 yeah. percent and you know i'll close with saying this yeah when we have that exhibit we we're very lucky to have an extended visit from our congressman jim himes yes who had come to the exhibit and spent a lot of time there we were grateful for that and when he was done he said to me you know to your point of being very sobered he yeah. said this has made me rethink right. a lot of what i thought i knew and it's making me look now at my colleagues across the aisle whom i sort of i'll admit had a little bit of a feeling of superiority moral superiority yeah 
right over what the system that they came from that's right and that their ancestors came from versus our own that we really don't have a moral high ground that's right um, and that's important to understand he was saying because yeah. it's a way to look at things very realistically so that we can move forward in mm-hmm. a positive way yeah very powerful and very important so thank you Rumi. thank you this has been buried in our past hidden histories we hope you enjoyed today's program Learn more and support our work at westboardhistory.org. You'll love what you learn.